Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to episode 109 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, one of your co-hosts, and with me, as usual, is my best friend and fellow music lover, Patrick. Hello! Also joining us for this conversation is a special first-time guest, soundtrack superfan and film music and media reporter, Benson Ferris. Hey there! Benson is here because we are going to be discussing first-time director Matt Schrader's Score, a film music documentary, which was shot over a -a two-and-a-half-year period after raising more than $160,000 through two different crowdfunding campaigns. The director Matt has said, I've always been a big fan of movie music, and as I realize a lot of people love film scores, I knew there would be an audience for this film, and you can consider us and this episode proof that he is correct. Before we dive into the film, though, here's a quick note from another podcast, one that we love, and we think that you will, too. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the filmmaking industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Awesome. Well, guys, let's get into score. Normally, this is where we give our spoiler warning. But this particular episode, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I don't think anyone listening really needs to avoid us if they haven't seen the film yet. That's not to say that you shouldn't go see the movie, because they should. It's on Hulu right now, streaming. I'm not sure. Did you guys find it anywhere else? I cut it on Netflix before it left, so... Okay, but it is gone now? Yes. Okay. And I think it's available on iTunes for purchase, I believe, for a pretty low price as well, if I'm not mistaken. But it is available on Hulu, and you can find it other places. So it's out there. Definitely go check it out. It's well worth seeing. But this conversation is one that you could probably listen to just fine if you haven't seen this documentary. It's not something we're going to ruin for you. So that's the spoiler warning for this episode. Okay, guys. Well, one word takeaway. We always start with this. And Benson, thank you for being here. We're pumped to have you and your kind of industry, both expertise and passion that you can bring to this specific conversation. So I'm going to ask you if you would go first and tell us what your one word takeaway is. Oh, sure. Why not? No pressure there, I guess. So my word that I'm putting out there is passionate. I feel like this uh, movie, I uh, loved it a lot in that it really showed the passion of both the people making it and of uh, the people behind creating this music, the producers on the film, the composers, all those working the audio department, that there's so much skill and craft to put together and that that is really shown throughout the entire thing of this from beginning to end, that these people care about the music, they care about what the audience feels, 
and want that to be conveyed and for us to understand that this is really a labor of love from beginning to end. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Patrick, what about you? What was yours? Well, mine would have to be respect. And going along with what Benson said, there's a lot of respect uh, throughout this this documentary. First of all, there's respect from me for the talent that I witnessed for like 90 minutes. I, I just had my, my jaw drop because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe there's this much talent that exists and even more that we haven't seen uh, outside of this. And then there's the respect that the composers have for their, quote, competition. It's so cool to see these different composers talking about one another in ways that are so endearing and challenging where you don't have you don't have that a lot. You have other actors who you know give each other props and stuff like that but you've never heard that from a com- a composer standpoint and finally the uh the studio musicians that producers and editors and everyone else that that goes into making something like this score and everything come to life it's just pretty mind blowing and so there's a lot of respect to be had across the board yep i would agree with that as well um the word i had is i kind of think it's kind of close to what benson was getting at in some ways but it's more directly about the music itself that we are learning about, talking about, hearing. So I'm saying my my one more takeaway was goosebumps. This is a conversation piece that is had in the film itself where they talk about this. Junkie XL says, when I make a track, it has to give me goosebumps. And I love that. I love that quote. This is followed up by a few other composers who echo the importance of that physiological response to music. And I don't know about you guys, but this is why I listen to film scores after the fact. And it's what largely defines the ones that I remember the most fondly. When I get goosebumps, I feel very strongly whatever emotion the score is trying to convey at that time. And so it creates a connection to that piece of music for me. So goosebumps for sure. And I did get them several times just watching clips of music in this documentary, which were amazing. So that's mine. To talk about this and kind of get us started, I think one of the really neat things that hit me when I was watching it this time around, this is the second time that I have seen it. I don't know about you guys. I realized how much film scores fit into the feeling film model uh, because that's really what they're all about, right? A score is about making us feel. And I wonder how, what you guys thought about this quote that was in the film by Quincy Jones. He says, we can make you feel anything we want to make you feel. And I'm wondering how you guys feel. I'm using that word a lot about this statement. It's in the name of your podcast. It is. I guess, I guess I'm allowed, but is there a manipulative factor to film scores? And is that okay? Yeah, I definitely think there is um, manipulation there. And it's not just okay, I think it's encouraged. I feel like there's a lot of times when in a piece of media that the images and sounds on screen are not uh, completely sufficient to put ourselves into the element that we need to uh, be feeling there. Sometimes that's to accentuate a moment, and sometimes it's to be a little counter to the moment. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Benson. I think the fact is music serves as sort of a supporting actor to what's being visualized on the screen. And I think directors take that equally into account in a level of importance as much as they do their shots and their scripts and everything else. It's a part of this big creative process. And 
if it's not manipulating you, if it's not making you feel something intentional, it's not doing its job. It's just noise at that point. I think that's where, for me personally, film scores are elevated is when maybe intentionally or unintentionally, they connect me to an emotional moment in a film. I can remember certain tracks of certain scores based on the scenes that they're connected to. And I don't think that's an accident. I really do think that when a composer sees a scene play out, he's talking to a director, he's envisioning, I say envisioning, he's hearing notes in his head or he's hearing pieces of music that said, here's how I can convey that emotion that's more impactful than just what's being uh, seen. And, you know, that's a slippery slope because sometimes a scene doesn't need music and sometimes it needs a lot of music. And I think it's between, you know, and up to the director and the composer to figure out what moments need it and what moments don't. But definitely, I think it's necessary for it to manipulate. So what do you, I would agree with both of you, actually. And I think that it is definitely a manipulation. I wonder if audiences can be manipulated by a strong film score. Let's say a Transformer score that gives it a very epic feel when in reality it's a poor movie. Can it can it flip the script for a film? Cover up uh, a film's deficiencies? I think it can try to in some ways. I don't feel like it can do so independently. You know, if a moment isn't being sold, uh, not even the greatest composer can completely um, redeem an awful movie. I would stand by that. I don't care who you get. Uh, there's just things they cannot put forth there. The visuals and other elements of the movie have to be working with the music to make that happen. But of course, the music can work more independently. There are moments where the music has to almost be subversive, that it is there to counteract what's being seen on screen. Um, I was just watching uh, Deadpool last night and how you've got that opening scene. I know it's not a score, but it's a good example where in the opening scene, you have uh, this really violent moment of the credits going by. You see the carnage going on the car as playing the really peaceful song in the background. And it gives you that contrast to show the difference between um, where Wade has been and where he's going. And yeah. the music can really do that a lot of situations. Yeah, I think what you're talking about there is some really great juxtaposition where music is still playing an intentional Definitely. role, but it's doing it in an opposite type way or that, that subversive way. And to answer your question, Aaron, I think when I go into a movie, I notice the score, but I don't hone in on it. I will probably connect it with moments in the movie that might cause me to go back to Spotify or wherever and check it out. But what I try to do personally is when I watch a movie for the first time, I really try to take it in as a whole. I don't, I don't want to break it down from a technical standpoint, especially if it's one that, you know, we're covering for our show. I'm focusing on specifically what we're going to talk about regarding the emotional takeaway. However, just like good acting, just like great cinematography, just like great sound editing, all those pieces, including a good score, help to elevate that emotion that you take away. My one word takeaway for a film is probably going to be influenced by the music, even if I don't notice it up front. Other movies, particularly the ones that are in my favorite five, I won't call them a top five because I can't rank them necessarily. They're all just really good, are all really great movies whose scores elevate them to a place that I don't think they would be otherwise. So the scores stand out equally as much as the movie itself. And I think that not having those in the film doing what they're doing would make the movies less appealing than what they are. Not just because of the absence of music, 
but the purpose behind those things. Like, for instance, the Deadpool, the opening scene of Deadpool, would it have been nearly as funny if you hadn't had that juxtaposed music behind it? I don't think it would have. I think it would have been funny and would have been just kind of crazy, but having that piece of music behind it that's doing completely the opposite tonally of what's happening in the scene makes it even funnier, and it sets you up for the whole overall tone of the film. Yeah, definitely. I would, I would, I can see what you're saying there. So yeah, I agree. And I think that it's an amazing feat in how this can happen in the background and we can enjoy these pieces of this whole film that are put together without thinking about that. And then you can also enjoy pieces of it and or appreciate the individual pieces of it that go together to make that whole, right? One of the things that I really enjoyed learning about, and this brought me back to something from a previous documentary I'd watched, was when we see collaboration between a musician and a director, um, a composer and a director. I was thinking about how when I was watching a Hunger Games um, documentary a few weeks ago, director Gary Ross was working with his composer after the fact, and so I got to see them sitting in a room, and you get to see kind of how some of this cutting is happening, how this process works where the movie is all the way done essentially. And then a composer is watching it on a screen and we see it in score. We have a section on this. You see one of the composers, she's at a piano and she's got like this widescreen TV right there above her piano. And she's kind of trying to compose music that matches the scenes. And it was fascinating to me to see that play out. Did you guys um, enjoy that part of it? Yeah, it's a cool experience there to be seen how a composer has this completely blank sheet. They have just a movie, no music, maybe a temp, but oftentimes they'll try to avoid that. And they just have complete freedom to work with this picture to see what works best, experiment and come up with a fresh score that will hopefully be able to drive the movie the way the director wants. I absolutely love this part of the documentary, in particular Hans Zimmer's response to it, because I remember when he started talking about getting these opportunities to score a film, and he talks about that blank canvas. He said, there's this blank sheet of paper in front of you, and after the initial excitement wears off, you go, you, you start thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, did they hire the right guy? Maybe they should have hired John Williams for this because it completely freaks the composer out. And I would, I would, I'd like to think that because we're all human and because all these guys are human, they experience that when they begin a creative process like this. And it's so just overwhelmingly amazing that we, we have this humanized perspective from a guy like Hans Zimmer, who I have the utmost respect for in terms of his filmography, discography, whatever you want to call it. But knowing that he, like any other creative person, starts with a bit of apprehension. And he says, look, the blank slate, the blank paper, the white sheet of paper in front of me is a good thing, but it's also an incredibly scary thing because I don't know what I'm going to do. And so you begin that creative process. And this is kind of what I felt was lacking, what I wanted more from the film was that creative process. This wanted, this made me want to go out and actually interview these guys and say, let me walk through your creative process. Let me see how you go about brainstorming ideas for a film. You know, do you look at a particular scene and do you come up with your, uh, your motif from there? Or does it just come naturally? I don't know. There are so many questions that I had after the documentary. It inspired me to want to ask more and do more interviews. So 
selfishly, I felt like this thing was way too short. I felt like it should have been a series and that <laughs> the subsequent episodes of the series were interviewing and breaking down the processes of these individual musicians. So, Benson, I got to ask, with your job, does any of this come into play? Have you got to experience any of this? Um, I haven't been in any scoring sessions or work with composers that much. I've been trying to get more into helping with the temp score. I've done that uh, some on projects I've, projects I've worked on. I, I work in the film industry here, and I have had uh, some experiences to help with what the temp should be and get a musical flavor to it. I, I would love to do that more, and that's sort of a goal to be working toward at this point. Well, I, I agree, Patrick. I really loved this section as well. And I, I just thought it was so cool to see and get a glimpse of different composers. I mean, like you said, with a series, it would be awesome to have a, like a full 30 minutes to an hour with individual composers going through their own processes and how they manage uh, creating a score and going about that process because it's different. It's different for all of them. Who was it? There's, I guess it's Steven Spielberg and John Williams. You know, it's just John Williams sitting at a piano with Steven Spielberg behind him. Others, they get sent a, a link to a film with, <laughs> it reminded me of the screening links I get, by the way, because there's like all this text on it, like saying, you know, don't, don't copy and don't share with anybody else. And I was like, wow, this is like a, a composer making a copy or a score for the film. And he's got to deal with that same annoying writing all over the screen. So I would have loved like a series on that as well. And I could, I could watch them do that work all day long. Uh, it's just brilliant. And to watch, watch them try something. And then back it up and try it again and then kind of find the right rhythm or the right sound uh, and then go from there is is fascinating. See, they didn't have time for everything they need. They can only make a documentary like an hour and a half. There's an additional uh, interviews disc that you can buy. There's an interviews book. I have it right next to me here. So there's other materials they produce that you can be checking out to get more from them. But I, I like the package that they put together overall. That's awesome. What about experimentation? So I felt like this documentary did a really great job of showing us various ways in which composers try to break the mold and try to innovate on a constant basis. Did you guys have any of things stood out to you in that area? Yeah, I like how toward the very beginning, uh, maybe like 10, 15 minutes in, it goes through like eras of, of film music. How it goes from the Max Steiner, Bernard Herrmann, uh, Danny Elfman, Hans Zimmer just progresses through all these eras and how these sort of landmark composers set a new bar and tried a new style that then got copied by other composers as time went on. Yeah, and it made me wonder in seeing the history of scoring film, if there is influence on a composer to try something new or if the composer is looking more specifically at a film and asking what can I do that's going to elevate this that might be a little bit unconventional I mean let's take let's take Zimmer's score for Dunkirk I, I listen to it and I can't listen to it independent of the movie because oh me neither it's because it's not necessarily music it's sound it's 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 really more sound editing and sound mixing than anything else but I think that's pretty cool because Zimmer is progressing He's doing different things than he did five to ten years ago. Danny Elfman's doing the same thing. What I would normally know as a Danny Elfman score, he's changed dramatically in things like Real Steel, which is one of my favorite scores, and I was surprised to know that that was a Danny oh, Elfman. And it just, I think that it's a combination and a very cool combination of composers 
maybe not wanting to get stuck in that typecasting role from a, from a musician's point of view, but also knowing that movies are constantly changing. They're constantly asking more from their creators and their audiences. So the composers have to adapt as well. And I think, I think a composer that can, a, a composer that can do that and do it well, uh, has a lot of longevity in terms of, of their talent. John Williams is one of those kind of exceptions to the rules. <laughs> I was because, about to say. <laughs> because, because he has been mainstream and I think he's fine with living in that role of this is who I am and this is what you're going to get. And he's a staple. He's standard. You know, you're going to get good music, but you're not taking that risk with him. Whereas I think, uh, a Hans Zimmer or a Danny Elfman, you're taking a risk as a director, but that risk can also be an incredible reward. Oh, definitely. Um, I really liked seeing, again, just the uniqueness of different composers that we got to get a glimpse of and kind of get to know through this documentary. So that's one of the things that, while I would love a whole series, I respect the fact that they chose to let us hit on a whole bunch of them, even if it wasn't nearly as long as I wanted with each one. You know, we, we got to see Marco Beltrami early, right away, like the, the documentary starts off and we see him like, recording a piano as it's decomposing on a windswept hill. It's wild. And then we get to see Junkie XL banging out on these drums um, as he's working on the Mad Max Fury Road score. And he's like using a MIDI keyboard and just doing these weird different things. And we see um, Dario Martinelli uh, on a harpsichord. We see Mark Mothersbaugh on like this toy piano. Uh, we see Bear McCreary doing something. I don't even know what the heck this thing was that he had in his hand. It's a hurdy gurdy. Okay, thank you. I googled and I couldn't even figure it out. What is a hurdy gurdy? Uh, it's a older. Uh, I, I don't know how to describe it exactly. You of course saw it's almost. It it's like a handheld, yeah. So it's almost like a harpsichord kind of thing. Feels like yeah. It's a definitely an older style of instrument. Uh, he used it on the score for the opening theme for Black Sails. Okay, uh, stars. TV show started to give it a more unique style from what we've seen from a lot of pirates things, but also to have that older sound that of course pirates are associated with. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad you knew what it was because it drove me nuts when I couldn't figure out for the life of me, what the heck that big contraption was in his hands. Um, I think we're talking about the same one word. We maybe talk about something different because he has such a vast knowledge of instruments. It, it was the only time in the movie I saw an instrument that I didn't recognize. So I'm sure it's probably that moment. I mean, and, and after that, even we saw someone trying to figure out how to make uh, score music off of sleigh bells. And I just, I really love that. I don't forget who it was that said something, but they said it's always about looking for the sound in what's around you. That, you know, music is everywhere and you're trying to find distinct and unique noises to use. Um, right, there's all also the time. Yeah. All the time, I'll be listening to some score and I'll just wonder, how did they get this sound? There's a moment at the end of the X Men First Class score during the, I think it's just called X-Men. And in that track, it's like 50 seconds in. I have no idea how they made this sound. It's so unique. And I just really want to figure out that. And that happens probably like once a month. I find something that I just want to grasp onto like that. So there's also this section um, that kind of fits into composing in unique ways and stuff in which they showed us, uh, who was it, Joe Kramer conducting inside Abbey Road. Yeah. I love seeing that and, and how... Certain composers, you know, want to do this at a desk at their house in a room with a keyboard and others want to conduct a live orchestra. 
Um, that was a pretty cool aspect of it to me. Do you guys have a favorite when it comes to that? When it comes to like how a favorite they... style, do you do you like what you know live orchestrated music more than I mean, like a obviously Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score is not going to need an orchestra. Uh, two of the biggest examples I think of are John Williams. Pretty much always conducts his own scores, and of course he is the maestro. He's the master. But we also see uh, one of the greatest composers working today, Michael Giacchino, will work in uh, in the back. He'll be listening to it while. Uh, someone else, Tim Simonek, or one of his other orchestrators will be actually doing the conducting. And he'll be able to do changes on the fly really fast because he doesn't have to worry about that element. So I can definitely see that there's pluses and minuses each way. I'm glad the composers have different styles and that there really isn't a best way. It's really up to the composer and director for how they work best together with this whole music team. Yeah, and I think it comes down to resources. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the availability or the, the, I don't know what composers that I'm familiar with outside of the the big names have a vast amount of money and resources to be able to book out Abbey Road or uh, Warner Brothers Studios. But I think some of it has to do with what a movie needs. So a movie like Fury Road may need more digitized stuff more mechanical, more industrial type sounds. And it could incorporate an orchestra as well. Whereas you have maybe a space opera like Star Wars or Terminator 2 and you have, well, even Terminator 2 has more of that industrial sound. So I think it really just depends on the needs of the director. And I can appreciate a composer who can do both, who has the ability to score something at his desk, but sees an orchestra as an enhancement of his music. Like I think... I don't remember the composer that said it, but he was talking to these just amazing studio musicians. And he said, I'm so grateful that I'm hearing my music coming from you guys, essentially. Like he was, he loves hearing it sort of articulated in a way that maybe it didn't completely sound that way to him when he was thinking about it or when he put it down on paper. But to see it come to life through an orchestra, I think has a different kind of value than putting it together through pro tools or, or things like that. So I think there's value in both. And I mean, it really depends. I think it depends on what the composer is capable of. Like some composers may like sitting in front of a computer, whereas other composers might like sitting in front of 150 people playing different instruments. That leads me into a thought about the fact that so many of these composers have very distinctive styles to their music. John Williams, you can hear a few notes of a score and you know it's a John Williams score. Thomas Newman uh, is, fits in that vein. To some extent, you would almost think Hans Zimmer, but now he's just, he's so experimental that who knows? Um, but he's always kind of got that rock quality to it. Junkie XL um, has several scores that all have a very similar sound to them. Do you think that composers can get typecast in a way that actors can like for doing the same roles over and over and over and not getting out of a comfort zone or do you think it's totally fine if someone plays the same type of character over and over and the composer does that same type of thing over and over oh i totally think that composers get typecast i think it happens all the time i see uh fans online where there'll be some project announced and they'll say wow that looks like it'll be great for alexander pla or brian tyler or thomas newman and i often agree that that looks like the type of project that they would do 
And so it's often sort of interesting to see uh, someone else get announced for for those or for them to go with that direction that I'm sure it does happen. Uh, this week we had announced uh, Dario Marinelli to score the new Transformers Bumblebee movie. That completely took me out right field. You could have me list a few dozen composers who I would predict for that movie, and I would never get to Dario Marinelli. So I'm very excited to see what type of thing he'll develop there. Yeah, and I think I would put some of the blame on your directors, because a lot of times... Of course. I mean, Steven Spielberg is probably the, the biggest culprit. You know, When you see a Steven Spielberg movie you're probably going to see John Williams' name attached to it for the music. Same thing with Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. Nolan uh, and Zimmer. Nolan and Zimmer. Um, what is it? Uh, Sylvester. Abrams with... and Chikino. Yeah. It's... Zemeckis and, and Sylvester. And, and, yeah. It's... But I think that's okay because if we gravitate towards a particular composer, then I would think that... Let's in the case of Nolan and Zimmer, I was going to go see Dunkirk regardless of who composed it. But seeing Zimmer's name on it, I was more excited. And then I was incredibly surprised at what I got. I wasn't disappointed. Again, it's not a soundtrack I'm going to necessarily listen to in the car or just while I'm working or doing, you know, any kind of like design or whatever. But I think what that does is even if you have these paired up relationships what you're doing is you're giving confidence to your audience and it almost gives your composer and your director in their own way a chance to be experimental and say look we've got a built-in audience because they know that if spielberg's doing this then john williams is going to be scoring it maybe john williams at some point might break away from his typical williams-esque stuff and do something different and maybe that'll give that built-in audience a chance to to hear something different I think Zimmer's done that really well. I think Elfman's done that really well. And um, so while it might be typecasting, I think it can be very beneficial. And at the very least, you know what you're getting if it doesn't change. So your audience isn't going to be disappointed. They're just not going to necessarily be enthralled by it. Yep. I'm right there with you guys. I mean, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword at times because you know what you're going to get. And that can be amazing. <laughs> or it can eventually kind of wear out what you are expecting. You know, like if if we want a wholesome, strong, leading man in a biopic, we know to go to Tom Hanks and we know what we're going to get out of Tom Hanks. So is he good at that? Absolutely. Every single time. <laughs> Does it mean that he can't do other things? No. And we would like to see him try other things. And I think I think that's where I get with it eventually is I would love to see what John Williams could do that's not typical John Williams. However, that's me projecting onto John Williams's life and John Williams's career. And I have no authority to do that, right? I have no right to really be like, hey, John, can you change it up for me? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's your life. It's your job. But um, it just, it makes me want to know what they would do. It makes me want to know what Tom Hanks would do in a role as a villain, right? So you get to see him kind of breaking a little bit of mold when he goes to do something like Road to Perdition, even though it's not fully different it's it's kind of a, a detour in style and so i would love to see certain composers do that the other thing i wanted to ask you guys was just if anything stuck out to you so what like open forum i guess for the doc in, itself what 
makes you enjoy this documentary? What makes you want to rewatch it? Does anything in particular from one composer, did you learn anything about one single composer that you were just like, man, mind blown, or now I really like this one composer because I learned about him in this documentary and I want to seek out his work. Any of that stuff happen for you guys? I think the one that I loved so many moments of, but I feel like the one composer moment that stood out to me the most was when they're talking to Hazer Peraria, the composer of Despicable Me and all those ones. How Despicable Me, it's a silly kids movie. I've seen them. They're all right, I guess. How much care he put into even this movie that I sort of dismiss sometimes and how there's this thematic development for the minions and the various characters and the situations and how it continues throughout all these different sort of emotional moments that occur. You know, even if this isn't high-class cinema, it's not going to be, you know, looked at in 10 years a masterpiece. He still puts a lot of effort behind that to make sure that this is a quality music experience, that he does his best, regardless of what it is. Not trying to be insulting or despicable me, but simply it's not, you know, some big Spielberg drama. Right. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think it calls back to something that, that I try to and I guess we on the show, this positive honesty that we try to articulate onto the show, but in particular, it reminds me to, it goes back to my one word takeaway. It's that respect. The fact is when a creator, whether it's a musician or a director is hired for something, in most cases, I'd like to believe that they're putting everything they they have into it and they value that project. And so it's so cool to see that where we as an audience may not appreciate it as much. But we get a little window into that world of saying, look, I've been asked to do this and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability because that's what I'm good at. I'm good at being a composer. I'm good at being a director. I'm good at doing this. I'm not just going to phone this in. And how any composer could phone anything in, I have no idea. But <laughs> I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I'm really glad to see that. Um, for me, there were two moments. One, finding out that Hans Zimmer was a member of the Buggles. I did not know that. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I had did no you know idea. about Danny Elfman? I did know about Danny Elfman and okay. Bunga, but But the other one was um, <laughs> Moby. Just I, I love Moby. And when he started talking about the way music works like any sound, it's just really uh, air molecules hitting your ears in different ways and how he describes sound pretty much being everywhere, music being everywhere, and how it's really just a matter of interpretation. To me, that cinches it in terms of how the creative process for music really is centered in being observant to things around you. As a designer, I'm constantly trying to look around at advertisements and the way people talk and life situations to try to write things down as being funny or a good design idea. And it reminded me that musicians do the same thing. They listen for sounds. They listen for things here and there. So a truck passing by or a gunshot or someone tapping their fingernails on a piece of wood might end up in a film score in some way, shape or form. And how he just breaks it down to a scientific fact that it's just molecules hitting your ear. It's really just depending on how you interpret those. And so it's up to us on how do we interpret that. So I thought that was pretty fantastic. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, mine, my number one is actually going to be part of my connecting point, so I'll save that. And then I have some <laughs> others that I want to mention, but they're part of your guys' connecting points, so I'm going to save those too. The, wow. I know. The um, one the opening that, credits were great. So they we'll just they were. <laughs> well, and the ending credits are actually pretty fascinating to me, I thought, because what was going through my head was during this finale, we had this rousing score pop up and start playing. And I was like, wow, you're doing it to me 
in your movie about doing it. So like, it's very meta. Like I had this very meta experience at the finale. Oh yeah. Um, which I'm sure was intentional. Uh, but junkie, junkie XL for me is the one that I kind of was really surprised by. I, I didn't know for sure of all these different scores he's done, but I really enjoyed his section and all of the different times that we got to meet him and see him in, in action. And it made me seek out his scores after we were done. He was one of the first people that I went and was like, okay, I'm going to go figure out what else this person has composed. And I did that with several, but he was the main one. I was a little bit bummed that there wasn't more Thomas Newman I've really, really come to respect and love his work. And there's a little bit of talk about him, but again, you just can't get everybody in there with all of this time and it's, you can't just pack it in. And so it's a balancing act they had to do, but I love Thomas Newman. I think he's incredibly kind of underrated in the public eye. And so I would have liked to have a little more attention paid to him to kind of give people more notice of, of what his work is like. Uh, there was also no mention of foreign composers, so that was, I guess they just made a conscious decision not to deal with that, but uh, they didn't deal with any of that. And then, like you said, Benson, I actually thought that was really cool, too, like, to see somebody scoring Despicable Me and these movies that generally we don't care about, and we just kind of, like, I think you used the perfect word, we dismiss because we don't care about the movie, but yet there's this even the movie itself, it kind of is a reminder that a director and, and actors and animation artists, like these people poured their, their passion into this project. We may not connect with it. We may not love it, but it doesn't change the fact that they're working their butts off to make what they feel is a movie that they can be proud of. And the score is there, a piece of that. There are tons of scores where I love the score and I'm not a huge fan of the movie, and it's, it just shows that it doesn't necessarily – a great score doesn't always go with a great movie. A great movie doesn't always yeah. get a great score. Yeah, Danny Elfman comes to mind from his uh, his scoring of The Circle that Aaron and I were not high on – was it last summer? I don't remember when it was, but yeah, we were, neither of us really cared for it that much, but I absolutely adored what Elfman did with the score. And again, it was not your typical Danny Elfman, at least not the Danny Elfman of the Edward Scissorhands or the Beetlejuice or the Batman. And I just was both surprised and, and happy that we got that and that it was kind of the one bright spot in a movie that just wasn't really great. Yeah. Well, I also want to mention before we move on that there is a score podcast now that the guys have created and it's very good and it does do a little bit more of that in depth um, that we've all been talking about and we all would have loved. They go around, they do interviews with composers and then they have some sections that highlight various composers to give them more attention, kind of like what I was asking for for Thomas Newman. I highly recommend checking this out. It's it's very, very good. It's out now. I don't know how often they publish episodes. Benson, you're listening to it, right? Oh, yes. Every week. Is it weekly? Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Um, I'm, I've got a backlog right now that I'm trying to work through their, their past episodes once I've figured out that this thing existed. But highly... Highly suggest check that out if you're interested in film scores. It's good stuff. It's got a lot of a lot of historical stuff to it, right? It's a lot of instructional and interesting backstory um, that goes into more depth than what we even got in this documentary. So I think this is a great wedding of the appetite. That's what I love about this documentary, and I truly do. I love it. I've enjoyed the heck out of it twice now. 
I want to own it. Um, Benson, what were you telling me? We were talking offline and you said, were you saying there was more on the disc you had? Because you got kickstarted it, right? Um, I don't think there's more on it. It's the it's the combo pack that you can get. Yeah, I've got right next to me. I could even hold it up. Yeah, you know, it's a two disc. It's a Blu-ray and DVD. And on it, it's got the main movie. It's got director's commentary for it. And that's, that's, like what, I was, that's what I was thinking of. Seven bonus features, I think. That's what I was thinking of. Was like the director's commentary. So that this is one that I want to get because I really I can't imagine like it would be interesting to go through a documentary about filmmaking with a director's commentary. I don't think I've ever had that experience so that would be pretty wild and do you enjoy that did you listen to it yet i love commentaries in general i'm about halfway through it uh okay. commentaries can be sometimes a little difficult to get through so i sometimes have to take a break and maybe i'll listen to the rest tonight or something like that the biggest problem though is there's no subtitles uh, i have never watched a commentary without subtitles because i need to be able to correlate what's going on, on screen it's just really hard for me to do that so it's it's hard to make the association, I guess. Well, good warning there. All right. Well, if you guys don't have anything else, um, we can go ahead and move into our connecting point section, which I think may be a little bit more robust this time because I know I have some comments to piggyback off of you guys's, and you may have some comments to piggyback off of mine, etc. Benson, we always like to let the guests go first. So what did you kind of connect with the most in this film? So it's hard to say saying I connected with the most. Overall, I, I was a supporter of this film from very early on. As soon as it announced on Kickstarter, I was uh, supporting it, backing it, trying to push it to our people. And I've been a film music fan for uh, over a decade now. I'm pretty young, but I still have been into it for a while. So I don't feel like there's that much that I necessarily didn't know or that they're putting it fresh. Obviously, there's some little technique here and there. But overall, I, the biggest takeaway for me from the whole movie was that it felt like it encapsulated my feelings about film music. That it it almost was an hour and a half segment that I could deliver to someone and show them why this means so much to me. You know, you have there's so many different types of genres of music out there, and it's hard to really put into words why exactly jazz or rock and roll or rap or hip hop is something that someone loves so much. And it can be even more difficult for something not as mainstream as film scores. And this just really put that, put that forward to me that there are so many layers to it. You'll be like 45, 50 minutes in, you'll be like, wow, there's nothing else I can learn from this. I've learned so much already. And then you still have 40 minutes to go and it just keeps on adding layers to it of orchestration, instrumentation, different people involved, the process of gaining audience reactions, working with directors, using a temp score. There's just so many layers to it that no one's going to think about. Sorry if that's so broad, but those are my feelings that this is a broad scope of how this can be used to connect people to this larger genre. No, that's fantastic. I think that's a very good connecting point and a very good point as well. Um, and it is one that I will highly recommend to people for that same reason. It's like, hey, you want to know why I care so much about film scores? Well, here it is in a nutshell. I don't have to try and explain it. It's been done for me now. And it's been done in a way that is accessible and entertaining and that people can get. And I think that anyone who has a, even a, a mild interest in a score is going to learn so much. I think there's no way they can watch this and not have an elevated feeling or a, a, an increased respect, as Patrick put it, for the film score in general. I will go next, I think, because mine kind of is a little bit in a way before Patrick's. But for me, 
and this calls back to that question I asked about the one composer I learned something about question, Brian Tyler's theater visit. Now, I didn't even know who Brian Tyler was until this oh, documentary. Disappointing. I, hey, you know, we all got to learn something, right? But it's so cool to me to see his story of how he would go into a theater and watch the audience reaction. And then he talks about how if somebody catches him and like, you know, sees him eye to eye, he'd like have to run out and hide because, you know, it's a little bit embarrassing, but he'd sneak in, he'd turn around and just watch them and wait for musical cues to hit so he could see what their, their visual reaction to the music was. And then he would walk out, he would go into the bathroom <laughs> creepily and listen to see if they're here, if they were talking about the music in the movie. And I thought that this was just so interesting because it grounded the composer for me in a way that he's just an everyman. And, and sometimes it's easy to put Hollywood actors, directors, anybody in the film industry on this pedestal. Like there are these, we kind of think in our heads that they're all mu- they're all movie stars. They're all Brad Pitts and have that same kind of lifestyle. Well, no, they don't, <laughs> you know, Brian Tyler doesn't. And here he is just showing that he is a creator and I guess as a creator myself of, of a podcast or a writer, I understand that feeling of wanting validation that your art form is having the desired effect. And it gives me a similar feeling like when I get a listener comment on our Twitter account, you know, immediately if Patrick or I see something like that, we will share it with each other and we'll have this shared kind of joy in seeing that someone was either encouraged or impacted or emotionally, you know, driven by a conversation that we had. So I completely get why Brian Tyler does this. And I, I understand that that feeling of satisfaction from seeing the audience um, visibly emote to his music has got to give him such an incredible, incredible high. And then it also, conversely, also reminds me that this is an example of that thing where here is a score that he has written with this rousing epic music in a movie that I don't like because it, it's one of the Transformers movies. I believe that he was, or no, it was Age of Ultron, right? It's Age of Ultron. Yeah, he into Transformers. It was Age of Ultron. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't really think of Age of Ultron when I think of scores. It, it's not one of the first Marvel scores that comes to my mind either. But like, here it is as a very impactful piece for him because he—that's what he does. So I just, I really enjoyed that section a lot, and yeah, got me to know Brian Tyler. That's really interesting. You mentioned that it's not one of the Marvel films that comes to mind for you because that kind of leads into my connecting point. And for me, the big section that stood out was the section on the motif uh, or the quote theme, I guess is what I, I, I've known it as. I'm going to start being sophisticated and calling them motifs because now I know and I like using the proper terminology. During this section, I just want to say, first of all, that every time a movie was shown to kind of give an example of this, I wanted to pop that movie in. I was like, oh my gosh, I got to revisit Lord of the Rings. Oh, oh my gosh, I got to visit Rocky. I mean, just, oh man, all these movies I want to rewatch now and just to hear those moments, right? But secondly, this plays right into what you were talking about, Aaron, with Brian's audience reaction. Because one of the things he says is that he gets inspired if he's sitting in a bathroom and he hears somebody humming the a particular motif or a theme from one of his movies. And I think this is something that has kind of been lost over the last decade and particularly with the the M- MCU. And I want to direct you guys you guys the audience, people listening right now to the now defunct every frame of painting uh video essay called the Marvel Symphony. 
Yes, the Marvel Symphonic Universe. This is a really interesting one because it plays right into what we're talking about here. In the essay, he challenges people to hum a, a tune from Star Wars and then from Harry Potter and then from Rocky or, uh, you know, whatever. And then he says, okay, can you hum a tune from any of the Marvel movies that we've seen in the last decade? And nobody could. And his point being that the music in the MCU isn't memorable. It's serviceable. I'm not saying that every composer has to have a hook, but in the documentary, there is an argument to be made about the fact that a motif can serve as supporting an idea that when you attach a motif to a particular moment in like, let's say man of steel, when there's a moment with Clark and his dad and a tornado and all we hear is Zimmer's score. I will forever link that motif to Clark Kent. And in fact, <laughs> there is a track called this is Clark Kent that encompasses that particular piano suite. And so I'm always going to remember that and hear that and I can hum that. And I think that motifs give this incredible power to connect us to film in a way that just a general score doesn't. Where a score might support and lend background kind of influence, a motif elevates a moment in a film in a way that maybe the actors and everything else around it can't, or at least not as much. And I completely gravitate towards that. Again, not that I think that every score should have that, but I think it's definitely something that I look for when I uh, when I listen to a, a score. Howard Shore actually talks about this in the score documentary too. And he, he says, it helps you understand the relationships in the story. When you hear a certain motif, you connect it. It actually helped you follow the story. Yeah. So it means that film scores and film music is a part of the storytelling process. It's not just there as background music. It does take you on that journey, emotional journey with the characters and with the action in the film as it's taking place. So it is absolutely true. And yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the motifs and the themes are generally what we're going to remember the most vividly. I mean, almost all of them. Yeah. I mean, the, the Lord of the Rings one comes to mind, obviously, because it was in there, but the da 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 And you hear that so many times, but it's retranslated in so many different ways. Uh, the Rocky theme is, is reinterpreted so many times in the original movie to help articulate moments in there that are, that the director is trying to, to convey. So I have one more question. This has been great, but before we wrap up, I wanted to ask this and I should have done it earlier, but we'll do it now. The word score and the word soundtrack are two different things. And I wonder for you guys, how do you feel about soundtracks as opposed to scores? Do you define Benson, I want I want to ask you first. You define them differently, and how do you think that composers feel about soundtracks versus scores? So it, that's also confusing because soundtrack has two different meanings. Also, it can be the physical slash digital release of music from a piece of media, and it can also be that you have the video track and the audio track, the soundtrack on a movie. So sometimes you have that problem when you're talking in the industry about it. Obviously, we're talking about the release of music from a movie. I definitely differentiate them. The score is all of the background music. Uh, to me, may someone else have a different definition. Uh, the score is the all of the background music that the composer wrote for this movie that gets put into it. Whereas the soundtrack 
is whatever is physically released. Yeah, we still have not received all the music from episodes two and three of Star Wars. I will frequently say that Pirates of the Caribbean 3 is my favorite score from Pirates of the Caribbean, but the first one is my favorite soundtrack because they left out so much on the third one, I cannot fully give it my endorsement as the best one. Fair enough. Okay. Patrick, do you define them similarly? Um, Maybe it might just be a matter of semantics. I think of soundtracks... When I say soundtrack, this is me personally, I think of songs that have vocal stuff attached to them, not instrumental. So when I say score, I'm thinking of the instrumental portion of a film that's released digitally for uh, for me to listen to. Whereas when I say a soundtrack, I think of, hey, the Karate Kid soundtrack is great because it's got all my great 80s vibe, but the Karate Kid score is good too because I love Bill Conti. So I make that differentiation and it it... it well, probably it's probably technically wrong, but that's the way that I differentiate it. So when I say score, I'm thinking more of the instrumental side. Soundtrack is more of the poppy songs, folk songs, whatever, that aren't necessarily independent of the composer. Because Randy Newman, obviously, for Toy Story, wrote original songs that are on the Toy Story soundtrack that includes his, uh, that includes his score as well. Well, I agree with you. That is how I define it as well, is I make a distinction between instrumental verse vocal tracks, with the exception of things like uh, the end of Gladiator, and there's a track in Last of Mohicans and some others, you know, where some vocals are taking place, but they're not an 80s song that's been inserted into a soundtrack. So that's right. kind of, that's kind of how I see the distinction as well. I know some people probably consider the difference to be only whether or not there's original music. So if there's like, that's what you're kind of saying, Patrick, like those Randy Newman songs are original. That's not a song from the nineties that he took and borrowed and got licensed and put into his movie. He wrote it. I remember when you're talking about that distinction there, I remember lots of my friends know I like soundtracks. And so back in 2014, when Guardians of the Galaxy was released, I probably had half a dozen friends that were telling me, hey, I got the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack. I love it so much. Like, oh, dude, that's so great. Tyler Bates did such a good job on it. I love the way he builds up at the beginning. It's got such a great, powerful theme halfway through. And then we get the ending and they realize that they're talking about awesome mix. And I'm like, guys, come on. Why'd you do that to me? <laughs> that's great, man. <sighs> well, <laughs> happened like half a dozen times. Oh, no. Well, this has been fun. I, I really enjoyed this. Again, highest recommendation for this documentary. I hope, listeners, if you've gotten through this episode and you haven't seen it, that you seek it out. I think we would all agree that it is well, well, well worth your time. Benson, I, I want. Go ahead. Can I bring a, a final thought here? That yeah, sure. I have about, about the documentary. I feel like we haven't talked as specifically about as uh, originally thinking. I, I've seen a complaint. I'm wearing your thoughts on this about the movie. I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, information about it. And there's a complaint that few people have, which I half-heartedly agree with, that feels like the movie um, doesn't add enough for a veteran soundtrack lover to really get more out of, and it doesn't introduce people well enough for a amateur, someone who doesn't really have that passion already, that it almost is hard to identify who its audience is. I don't fully agree with that, but I feel like it halfway has that problem that doesn't embrace an audience and choose to delve in with them. Do you guys feel that all about it? I would agree with some of it, like you said, and not all of it. I do think that it is not incredibly deep or as it does not have as much depth as it could, but I think that that's intentional. I think it's meant to be more yeah. of that stepping stone, bridging the gap, introductory type of thing for, for new 
film score lovers, I think that the information that it gives is there for introducing new listeners and new viewers to the film score world. I think maybe in the editing, it could have been done a little bit differently. I think starting it off with like Beltrami and this, you know, piano up there on the hill is probably not the smartest way to start off the documentary. Oh, I agree with that full heartedly. But so maybe it's in the editing, but the information, I really feel like it's there. Yeah, sure. I, I think there's definitely, there's a breadth of information that you're getting in 90 minutes, which I think was the intent of the director and his creative team was... There's a lot of good information that I think they wanted to tell. And anytime you do a documentary, that's a difficult thing is to identify the story that you're trying to tell. And I would agree that it's difficult to f articulate what that story is. Like if I could sum it up in a few words, it would be, it, it wouldn't just be the history, it would be the past, present and future of score. I mean, that would probably be the best way that I could describe it, but that's not selling, that's kind of selling it short because it's not doing that incompleteness it's doing it at really more of a high level so we get like the beginnings of where scores started what they've evolved to and where they're going through the voices of these different individual composers um so i i think there's a valid argument to be made that it's having trouble with figuring out what it wants to be but i agree with both you and aaron that the information in there is just incredibly valuable and incredibly entertaining and incredibly enjoyable Awesome. Well, that's great, man. I'm glad you asked that question. I think it's an important one. And I hate Rotten Tomatoes, just as a, a final thought, too. Um, oh, sure. <laughs> it's a place to get critics' opinions. It is, I know. Where can people find you online, Vincent, if they want to seek you out to talk, talk to you further and uh, connect with you? So the biggest place that I use online is you can find me at Go Soundtrack. I'll just G-O-S-O-U-N-D-T-R-A-C-K-S. Pretty easy stuff there. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and Twitter is the main one that I use. I'm still trying to develop a website and different uh, additional elements that I'm going to hopefully be adding to that. Uh, I have some other projects I'm working on on the side, a little less completely film music related in addition. Patrick, what about you? Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at uh, Facebook and Twitter at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm usually floating around one of those two social media platforms. Um, tune in next week. We have got Big Trouble in Little China happening. This is a week that we are continuing our guest chair population. We are calling in Francisco Ruiz of the Retro Rewind podcast. Aaron's taking a week off to cover some more SIF stuff, and so he needs a break, and I need to talk about this move. Be sure to tune in if you're interested. Francisco's going to be in to, to talk through that, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it. Well, I was glad that you chose this because I don't really care for the movie, so listeners, you're going you're gonna to not have to listen to me not like Big Trouble in Little China. I've already gotten some comments about it when I posted that on Twitter, so whatever. If you want to come talk to me about how I'm crazy for not liking Big Trouble, in Little China. You can do that by finding me at Feelin' Film Aaron or at Feelin' Film. I use the Twitter account for the show as well. You can also come join our Facebook group with Benson as well as in that group and many of us who talk movies all day long every day. We would love to have you come be a part of that group and join some awesome conversations and discussions and just add your voice to that. Lastly, we recently announced the Donor Pick episode for May. We asked our supporters from patreon to pick a movie that was one of the five we gave them as mother's day related choices and they chose terminator 2 which is of course a great mom movie yeah. we're kind of excited to go through that one here a little bit later in the month 
Everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, we hope that you will put on a film score after this. We hope you've been inspired to do that and seek out a composer you love and go find a new one as well. Until next time, stay positive and keep feeling films.